Lead Generation Strategies for B2B Tech Companies, a podcast by Brightvision. Here, you will learn how to generate great leads from the most experienced B2B sales and marketing people. Your host today, and always, is Jakob Levenbrand, CEO at Brightvision. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the B2B Legion podcast for tech companies. My name is Jacob Lovenbrand. I'm the managing director of Bright Vision as well as host of this podcast. Today we have a very special episode and a little bit of a celebration and tribute episode. There is one book that has especially been significant for me as well as for Bright Vision. That is book is Crossing the Chasm, a book that focuses on the challenges tech companies face when introducing new disruptive tech products into the market and how to make the leap into the mainstream market. A difficult journey, I can say, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs and tech companies can um, say that as well. It has been a huge success. This book has sold in more than 1 million copies and now is in its third edition. And it, this year is 30 years since it came out for the first time. And today we have the honor to interview nonetheless than the author himself, Jeffrey Moore, who wrote the book and many more since then. With that short introduction, welcome to our podcast, Jeffrey. Oh, Jacob, it's a pleasure to be here, really. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you on the show. And I can just start before we dive into your background and, and all your great content you have about marketing and strategy for tech companies. I can just say that my background with your books have been that in the 90s, in 97, I was... Uh, in business school, I helped the tech startup company uh, with a marketing plan. It didn't really run with uh, Kotler's four Ps and <laughs> the traditional marketing literature in the business school. By a coincidence, I found your book on Amazon, uh, ordered it, and that made my summer. You know, I I be able to put together a whole marketing plan, and that worked great. And actually, their neighbor in the uh, in the tech yeah area of uh, lean shipping in Sweden they asked me to do the same stuff for them since they thought oh that was great what book is this and and that uh, spread around a little bit so <laughs> that took me into marketing uh, freelancing and uh, I'm still working on that you know so uh, uh, but today we're more of a lead gen agency but the crossing the chasm and inside the tornado framework have always been with us and been a a uh, marketing strategy platform we've been standing on a lot when discussing with clients on how to do things in this and that way or so. So that is awesome to actually be talking to you today, Jeffrey. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad that the platform has been useful. It, 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 yeah, as you said, it's 30 years old. It seems to be standing the test of time and that I'm very proud of that. Absolutely. And before we dive into a little bit on what's been going on these years, uh, maybe you can just, you know, Give us the background of what led you up to write the book and become the marketing uh, author, speaker, and expert that you have been doing now for the last 30 years. Sure. So actually, you know, I started my career uh, in a different profession. I was a, good, I was a literature professor. Uh, I have a doctorate in Renaissance English literature. I taught for four years, but we wanted to move back to California. And so in doing so, there were no jobs in the academic sector. So I, I joined a software firm as a training director, but I got into sales and marketing and, and marketing was what I was good at. And then I was able to go from, I worked at three different startups. And um, at the end of that, I, I went to work for a consultancy 
called Regis McKenna, which at the time was the premier marketing consulting uh, firm for for uh, high tech. They did the Apple ad. They did the he was an Intel's. He was, he was kind of the key guy that because I was for five years there working with with many, many tech companies at that time. That was what let me able to see the pattern that got captured crossing the castle. And because I was an English professor, I liked to write. So in other words, I wanted to write anyway. So that and, and then that book just kind of it, 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 it kind of struck a chord with people uh, like yourself. It allowed me to freelance. I left Regis and started my own firm, the Chasm Group, and we subsequently had two other uh, consulting groups. And, and that led to a second book called Inside the Tornado, which is okay, now you're on the other side of the chasm. What about how do you compete in these hyper growth markets? And then there was a book about investing in high tech called The Gorilla Game. <clears throat> and then there were a series of books after the in this century about how does a, a legacy firm play this game? Because I was playing it for, always from the startup's point of view. And so the most recent book in that series, which I think is the best one, is called Zone to Win. And it's how do you cross the chasm if you are, if, but you still have to pursue your core business, like an Ericsson or, or someone like, like, like that. So anyway, that's what I've been doing, and currently I'm advising Salesforce. Uh, the late Zone to Rin was with, with Mark Benioff and his team at Salesforce, and Satya Nadella and his team at Microsoft. So really, really good teams gave me a ton of perspective, as you can imagine. And then those Intel's working with these frameworks, Cisco's working with these frameworks. So big companies, but also companies like F5, which is a two to three billion dollar company. And then and then you know the startups are still more crossing the chasm oriented. So that's what I've been up to. Yeah, that's so interesting. This zone to win is really tying in really well to crossing the chasm and inside the tornado, as you say. So, but for more portfolio based company where they have a lot of products in different phases and so forth. So awesome. If you would, uh, <clears throat> when did you see that you hit a nerve that was really, really uh, appreciated when you wrote Crossing the Chasm? Since uh, I suppose that was a little bit uh, uh, unexpected since, uh, I mean. <laughs> well, it, 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 was, it was really kind of funny because, you know, um, you, you come out with a book, the publisher said, well, you know, we don't want to give you a big advance uh, because, you know, we don't think it's going to sell very many. And I thought that was fair. I said, well, to cover the advance, how many would we have to sell? And they said, well, we'd have to sell, I think, like 7,500 books. I said, okay, well, if we sold more than that, could we raise the royalty for anything over that? Oh, yeah, no problem. Okay, no problem. So what happened it was, it, it was one of those things that went word of mouth, kind of like the whole theory of marketing, right? But I, for me, I think the key moment was when I, I went to one of these conferences, as you often do, and you say, hi, I'm Jeff Moore, and blah, blah, blah. And the guy goes, oh, you're the chasm guy. <laughs> the chasm guy. <laughs> and so that's when I realized that it was beginning to resonate. And it was fun. When, you, when you'd give a talk about crossing the chasm, you'd watch people elbowing each other because they'd be laughing at each other about, you know, they, yep, we made that mistake. Yep, we made that mistake. So, so that was I thought, okay, this is, there's really something here. Yeah, awesome. And I know that a lot of companies have re been really helped by the, the things you defined and, and put to print that maybe a few other had, had experienced. But I, I really think you did a great job to actually defining the whole process of taking products through the different phases. And uh, just a quick question there. Um, if you would like to rewrite the book today, is there anything you would do differently? Do you see any of the core concepts or ideas you had there that have changed over the time? Or would you it's like to? 
Yeah. So I've, you know, I've, I, in one sense, I've rewritten the book twice because, as you said, it's in its third edition. But with that, really, but in both cases, I didn't actually change any of the ideas or any of the frameworks. I just changed the examples mm -hmm. because you know people had not heard of, of, of the companies, and we had new examples. But having said that, and and I do think a couple of things we've learned though that that you know we say, okay, what do we know now that we didn't know then? One is this is a B two B framework. It really isn't as good for B two C. So if you're in a B2B business, or most people now are in a B2B to C business, right? Mm -hmm. For the B2B part, it's like, it really does hold up very, very well. But the other thing I learned, which I did was is not represented anywhere in the book, came from an experience of being on the board of a company in a venture back uh, firm I'm associated with called Enlight. So Enlight made, uh, makes uh, semiconductor lasers. And they had the original premise was they were going to be at optical networks, and the whole optical network thing kind of went into the tank. So they shifted to work with with very specialized uh, industrial scribing, like doing the back of a of an iPhone, kind of really uh, very very delicate work. And there was a they had kind of a very lumpy business, and we we're like we kind of find something better than that. What we ended up saying is, look, there's an industrial laser business. There's a very strong leader there named IPG, but we could be a number two. And if we just if we essentially copy them because we have better technology than they do, but we, we we're not going to we're, we're going to we're going to go in and we're going to do a me too thing first. Mm. We crossed the chasm. Basically, we went to their side of the chasm in a market that they had already established, and we just took the second position there. What that let us do it is it let us build a book of business of about hundred million dollars that that was basically there to be had for the number two player, mm. and then we were able to take our disruptive technology and now we're being highly disruptive in that in, in that industry as well as other industries but we actually crossed the see i never thought about that you could cross the chasm by essentially instead of taking featuring your disruptiveness you actually feature your compatibility and and, and get into the market that way and then, and then and then disrupt from from within that had never occurred to me before that's interesting so so yeah and that is uh that is really, really interesting because I think a lot of companies are struggling a little bit, you know, should we be disruptive or should we try to be as the other guys, but better? And I, I have actually interviewed a few persons around this because I think that's the topic that become quite popular in the last years. And I think you was one of the pioneers actually defining the product category as a key ingredient in the marketing plan and the positioning. And yeah. now we have these category designers and consulting firms. And I had Christopher Lockhead a few weeks back to on the podcast as well, also based in the Valley, who, who helps a lot of companies on this. So what's your experience looking back on product category if it's better to go with one i had for example a discussion with uh sangram vire of terminus who said don't do it <laughs> it's it's very very hard and then we have christoph lockhead and others who say yeah that's the only way to compete you know what what should a marketeer today do <laughs> well so so no it's important these are two legitimate paths but they're very 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 different yeah, and their yeah. risk reward profiles are very different. So if you take, if you, because look, for a category to actually come into creation, a whole lot of companies have to essentially circle around it and endorse it and invest in it. And at the beginning, if you're just a startup, it's like, you know, you're just like one point of light and trying to make this thing happen. Now, if you're truly disruptive, you then you, if you're Elon Musk and you're going to do an electric vehicle that's only electric, okay, 
that that's the game you're playing but it's a kind of a go big go home kind of kind of uh, kind of game it's very venture capital oriented you you just it's, it's very having said that however look what amazon did with amazon web services mm. they did that in a public company which is just amazing to me mm. but it it, it it it's certainly the it's certainly the story that creates the maximum wealth creation because when you create a new category if it's successful what that means is a huge amount of money in the world which was being spent someplace else is now going to get budgeted to spend on this new category so there's a huge amount of and it's all coming in at the same time this is what we call the tornado where all of a sudden everybody says we got to go to the cloud or we have to have mobile apps or something like that and if you're there and if you are the leader at that moment your value goes to the roof I mean, look, you know, Apple with the iPhone. I mean, this goes crazy, right? Mm. So that so it makes great stories and it makes incredible wealth creation. And there's maybe 10. Mm. <laughs> so so it's, it's not it's not very common. So what the other guy was saying was, look, a, a much less risky, but also less rewarding mm. strategy is go into an existing category, but carve out a market where you are you can disrupt. So in other words, um, you know, go to go to somebody saying, look, in general, uh, the, the category leaders that are in place are, are the leaders, but we can we can take this one piece of the market and specialize there and we can take that away from them, essentially. And that's at much lower. And that's very much like crossing the chasm strategy of focus on a niche market, nail it, you know, nail its issues in a way that even the big guys just say, no, I'm not going to go that far you do go that far and people go wow and that's probably the single most reliable play in tech if you will do that customers will love you and they will endorse you and you can have a real business mm. but in that case you don't innovate a new category but rather say we're an ERP system but we only do funeral uh agencies <laughs> or yeah, something no, like no, that no, yeah. no, it, it, exactly and, and by the way and you, but you have to say and funeral agencies have a class of problems that the standard ERP system really doesn't support, yeah, um, yeah. and therefore, and therefore, you know, when we have invested in the, I'll give you a tiny example because mm -hmm. it was very early on with crossing the chasm. Lawson Software at the time was a forty million dollar client server ERP system, competing against SAP and PeopleSoft and Oracle, who were like massively larger. But what we decided to do is say, okay, we're going to go after healthcare specifically. We're going to go after a group called the Integrated Device, Integrated uh, Delivery Care Networks, IDNs, and they had a problem with inventory. Their problem was they keep inventory in what they call a par cart. It's a mobile cart inside the facility. They wheel it around to operating systems, whatever. They needed to track their inventory in terms of a par cart. Well, no, nobody's ERP system had a par cart in it. So Lawson said, came out with it, the healthcare edition of Lawson. It had one feature that differentiated it car carts it was in the it was in the beginning of every demo and then we'd say now ask sap about their park cart <laughs> <laughs> and, and so we were able to go from 40 million to basically 250 million largely in healthcare uh because we were so the point is you can always do it if you if you if you find the, the nerve and, and then you really specialize in it yeah, that's so awesome, that example, to find the few feature set that actually defines the core need of that specific segment or target area and, and so forth. So that is so interesting, but also extremely hard when what uh, I think choosing target segments is maybe the most challenging for entrepreneurs. 
and yeah. and marketing managers who really you know want no we can do that as well you know should we actually try to focus on something why i know the people over here like us as well you know so uh what's your take on that because when i've try to coach companies into, you know, going small, going niche, it's really, really hard to get them to intuitively understand, well, if you go small, you will become bigger than if you go broad and actually try to be too much to too many people rather than being really, really small. So what's your, what's your key takeaways to companies, you know, on where to zoom in, how big, how small should that segment be, and how should they decide if that's the right one to, to target? Because it's, you know, should we go all in on that or should we maybe hedge a little bit and have a few segments here and there? Yeah, what's your take on that, Jeff? So I think this is a really, this is kind of at the core of really crossing the chasm and zone to win for that matter, which is we are taught in business school and from our business experience with large corporations to focus on a set of performance metrics, your bookings, your market share, your contribution margins, your, 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 you know, your, your revenue growth, a whole bunch of stuff. And it's all, it's all in spreadsheets. So when I call those performance metrics and they're incredibly important, everybody gets that. What they ignore or what they do not pay attention to is what we call power metrics. So power metrics are designed to say, when you need to get become more powerful, you need to invest and you don't want to be harvesting your power in performance. You want to be building your power. So, what, so for example, you would lose money in a power investment cycle because you're trying to become more powerful. You're, you're, you're going to develop you know, a, a tighter relationship with a market segment. So then you say, so, so the, the focus idea is you focus to accelerate power growth which you are subsequently going to harvest as performance, as opposed to harvesting it right away. The problem when you harvest it right away is if you don't have very much power and you harvest it, you, you're never going to get you're never going to get anywhere because you're not going to grow in power. And people think, well, if I get more money, uh, I'll be more powerful. And the answer is no, you won't. No, you will only be more powerful when you have more customers in a particular segment, because then the ecosystem starts to organize around you because you are the gateway to those customers. But if you're not the gateway to any group of customers, nobody organizes around you. They, they'll buy your stuff or maybe yes, maybe no, but you never build power. And so you can't control yourself. So then the question is with segments, two questions. First one is, how do you know a good segment from a bad segment? Very simple set of rules, three rules. One big enough to matter, meaning if we got a 30% share of this segment, we would double or triple our size, okay? And so it's big enough to matter, okay? Small enough to lead. If it can't be so big that if we get, you know, if we triple our size, we're only 2% of the segment because nobody organizes around somebody that has 2% share of anything, right? So you, so, you, so you big enough to matter, small enough to lead, good fit with our crown jewels. In other words, there's gotta be something about the problem in that segment that your technology is just like, yeah, we, we can nail this one. So that's those, so now you have that, those are the criteria. Now you're looking at a list of possible segments. And you say, well, I don't know. You know, we could, I mean, with, with Documentum in that first story, well, we, we've got the airplane, Boeing used it, and then Syntex, who's the pharmaceutical people, used it, and Mc, Marshall McClellan, who were the financial people, wanted to use it. And what do we do? And the answer you, you realize is pick one. Well, which one? Doesn't matter. What you want to make sure is that they have a compelling reason to buy. You, you, want, you want your customer to be in trouble so that they'll lean in and, 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 and listen to you. But other than that, it doesn't, the only thing is, but hedge, hedging, is, hedging is the losing bet. So when you're doing this exercise, 
you know, it's, it's a little bit like in America, we have this election system where we have primaries during the presidential election. And like we have 50 states and like the first primary is New Hampshire. It's a tiny little state. It has like, I don't know, some very small number of delegates. But winning the New Hampshire primary is a big deal because it puts you on the election map. Well, the rule in winning the New Hampshire primary, rule number one, votes in Vermont do not count. That's a state right next to New Hampshire. It does, you know, it's like, it's like if I want to you know, vote in Norway, do not help me win the premier premiership of Sweden. Right? Exactly. And, and, and same, same idea. So it's like, so, so, so it's really important to nail, nail, nail that, um, that focus bit. Ah, oh, that's so interesting. And I know that you have, you know, mapped out in crossing the chasm this uh, uh, grid system that you should try to find use cases and, and you know, segment them based on uh, uh, compelling need and so forth. Is that still a great way to work or do you have any, you know, experiences from what's the best way to, to actually find this if you're a tech entrepreneur in the scale up today that really wants to nail this strategy? How, where should they start looking? Yeah, we have this, we have this, the, the one of the, artifacts of the crossing the chasm effort and by the way there's a place called the chasm institute now run by a guy named michael record is the managing director is a guy named michael eckhart who basically teaches the chasm methodology and has been for for decades but we had something we called the nine point checklist and this checklist held up very very long although i'm I'm now changing the ninth point on it, but, 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 but let me kind of give you the, 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 and by the way, crossing the chasm, the book is organized around this. So the first thing was you have to, who's the target customer and what's the compelling reason to buy? And it isn't just a type of company. It was like, who, who's the job owner? Who's the budget owner? Who's going to be the end user? I mean, you really want to figure out what's going on in their world and kind of where's the trapped value in their world that your solution is going to release. And one of the ways you pick a segment is if there's a ton of trap value, and if it's really causing a lot of problems in their success, that's a great, that's a compelling reason to buy. That's what we, what we meant by that. Once, and that's kind of the value proposition. Okay, okay, that's, that's what we're selling. The outcome we're selling is we're going to solve the compelling reason to buy problem for the target customer. We're, we're, and by the way, you're selling an outcome. They don't want to yeah. buy your product. They want to buy that yeah. outcome. Yeah. So then the next, so the next two are, we call it the whole product and partners and allies. And that was, okay, if you're gonna deliver the outcome, obviously you're gonna ship your product and do what you do, but usually that's not enough. Usually there's other stuff that has to happen in conjunction with you in order to truly take that problem off the table. Mm -hmm. And that's where the partners and allies come in. So you're not looking for partners and allies to increase your sales coverage. You're looking for partners and allies who will help you solve your target customer's problem. Mm -hmm. And so building that consortium, and that's the beginning of an ecosystem because now you're bringing a company into a deal that they would not have gotten except for you. So they're starting to organize around you. You're becoming more powerful. And then the next two were distribution and pricing and they're kind of like, okay, so how are we going to focus our sales resources? How are we going to play our pricing game? That's pretty straightforward. And then the, the seven and eight were who's our reference competition and what's our positioning. And the key there was, I don't care who you, I don't care who's actually your actual competition. I want you to have a reference competitor who the, who the customer respects, but then you differentiate from them. Like you say, like for example, with Enlight and IPG, IPG is the global leader in this you know, area, but we specialize in this particular uh, kind of cutting or this particular kind mm -hmm. of serviceability. And so, the, and you, but you differentiate against the best person in your company, not, not some, some you don't, you're not trying to trash the competition. 
you're actually trying to get a certain amount of halo. I mean, when, I, when, when the Apple Mac came out, it competed against the IBM PC. It didn't try to compete against the other Coleco and all those other kind of uh, home home computers. Same, but and then the last one was next target customer. But I've I've decided the last one I want to change now is what are your success metrics? So how will you know if you've nailed this first one? So so in terms of you know segment segment share, you know, number of the of the top thirty cup, cup companies in your target segment, how many have bought from you in the last year and a half, that kind of stuff. The, the kind of thing that venture capitalists look at, that's what you want for your success metrics. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's an important decision. It's a little bit, uh, <laughs> you can't switch too many times. As you said, it's, it takes a lot of energy to create that ecosystem and the partnerships and allies and so on. And that is something that has become really uh, important these days for especially B2B. I, I mean, if we look at B2B, enterprise software, we see their integration partner directories explode. For example, HubSpot have, I don't know, 500 plus or 1000 plus partners, uh, all upcoming SaaS place really try to integrate to as many as possible. So is it, do you think this is how it will be or can a SaaS play or, or enterprise software do it there, you know, go alone or, or how should you compete in this ecosystem area where everybody's tying into each other? So to say, what's your take on that? Well, so I do think that one of the differences between the 20th century and the 21st century is in the 20th century, it was on-premise client server, you know, every, and every installation, frankly, was unique because by the time you integrated with the customer software, no two, no two integrations were the same. Mm. In the 21st century, starting with consumer computing and all the APIs and, 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 and the open, uh, open interfaces. And, and now that's become standard for the B2B as well. Mm. So you, you have to play, you, you can't, you have to, you have to have open APIs and you have to be able to do that. Mm. Having said that, you want to say, look at it from the customer's point of view. If the customer wants to treat you as, as basically core horizontal infrastructure, then it's incredibly important you integrate with the rest of their stuff. Mm. If the customer on the other hand says, no, you, this is a specialty tool that's really more designed for our specific applications in our industry, then it's less important for you to integrate. And it, you have to plug in, but what they're really going to care now is, mm-hmm. have you gone the extra mile for me? Mm-hmm. And that ecosystem partners in general, are the, particularly the big ones, they want to go broad. You know, and, and so if you could, if you will focus and maybe bring some second tier or third tier partners who say, well, for us, this, this is good business. We, we will go the extra mile, but, but, you're, but you're differentiating on that whole product that goes the extra mile. Mm. Yeah. Way, when, you do, when you do your lead gen, because you guys are doing B2B lead gen, mm-hmm. when you go into a target, it's totally different. In a targeted segment, you don't look for RFPs. You actually provoke the customer. You, you, put out, you put out marketing literature that says, do you have this problem? Is this thing driving you crazy? Because you're betting, of course, that it is. Mm. And if it is, you want to take a look at us, as opposed to in a broad horizontal one, which is, you know, if you're thinking of buying Cisco or Intel or whatever, you should look at us too. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a more, in one case, there's a product category there and you're sort of fighting to get into the mm. RFP battle. Mm. But in the other one, you, you often have a sole source because, mm. because there's nobody who's doing it. And you're the first one to show up to say, I have a yeah. chance for this. Yeah. yeah. 
That's awesome. And that's that's so interesting to hear because uh, that is exactly where a lot of our clients is, you know, thinking about which way should we go and should we provoke or rather be as the other ones, but a little bit cheaper or better or faster. So that's so interesting. And that is also bringing me to another question that I think a lot of companies is uh, struggling with. And that is a little bit on, you know, you have your marketing framework where you say, it's not so much on the product as I understand it, but rather where the product fits in into the categories place in the technology option life cycle. So if you if you launch a new product that belongs to a product category that's in the tornado phase, you need to do tornado marketing, so to say, rather than, oh, we're a startup, you know, <laughs> because that's that's where the market is. So if you're competing in that space, you need to go there. But I have always found, uh, yeah, you're nodding, so it feels good that yeah, yeah. I haven't no, you're right. No, you're right. totally mis- misunderstood that. But uh, how do you know where in the, you know, what are your best signs in how to understand where the market, where you want to belong is in which right. phase, you know, do right. you have anything to say for, yeah, for sure. marketers so, so, and entrepreneurs there? Yeah. So, so just to refer for the, for the audience, there are four stages that we, we, we call out in what we call the technology adoption life cycle. The early market, which is before the chasm, and that's, that's highly disruptive. Uh, then there's the crossing the chasm phase where you go after niche markets. We call that the bowling alley. You're knocking over use cases one after another. Then the third one's the tornado when the category just takes off and everybody's buying it. And the fourth one is Main Street, which is, okay, now it's, it's an established category where more of a renewal, you know, maybe the expand of land and expand is happening on, on Main Street. So, so um, when you're looking at that in terms of, well, the, remind me of the question, because I just- uh, Yeah, where, what are the signs you should look for in order yeah, yeah, to find okay. the right uh, yeah, 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 face? Yeah, right. Thank you, thank you. So the point <laughs> I wanted to make is, in the first two stages, there's no budget, you, the, there is no budget pre-allocated when you show up. In the early market, they never even heard of the category. So if they're going to buy in the early market, they're actually going to find money, which was, which was either in, a, in some sort of slush fund or was being used for some other purpose, and they're going to repurpose it for you, which requires a very charismatic sales motion, right? I mean, you, you have to, it's a, and you have to have a visionary customer who's willing to kind of go in some brand new direction. When you're crossing the chasm and you're going after these niche markets, there's a budget there, but it's not for you. They're spending the budget on the old way of trying to solve the problem that's not working. So what you have to do in that sales motion is say, look, do you see how much money you're spending kind of putting Band-Aids on something that's not getting better? Why don't you take that money and spend it with us and we'll fix it once and for all. And, and, and by the way, you'll be able to keep that money. The, you, know, that's, you can take that spend and use it elsewhere after you buy our stuff. But even there, the, there's no RFPs in either one of those markets. The RFPs start in the tornado. And the, the, one of the signs that the categories in the tornado is people have budget for it for the first time. And so, and so you see, and by the way, the analysts are writing about the category and the financial people are talking about the category because everybody's spending money in the category. And, so, and then the difference between that and Main Street is on Main Street, the incumbent has a huge advantage. So one of the things you try to do in a tornado is get as much market share as you can because that means you're the incumbent. And then, and then on Main Street, you can then, you know, you can expand. So you try to land as much as you can in the tornado so that you can then expand over time on, on, on Main Street. And, and, and the, but the budget, the first budget, the tornado budget is 
it's a budget I'm going to spend this year. I'm going to I'm going to go all in. It's typically a capital expense budget, and then subsequent years it's more like an operating expense budget uh, and getting 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 in. So using that, where's the budget today? I think it's the most reliable sign of where the category is. Mm, yeah, that's great, and. Uh... Uh, you've also talked about, uh, you know, the speed of change in your books and getting big cli uh, big companies to to work like startups in, in trying to allocate bodies. But because you have addressed that a little bit that big companies in some to win, I suppose it was uh, that they are having problems acting as even though they have the money, they can't really foster innovation so easily since they are not venture capitalists and so on. But how how should uh, a big company today think about you know if they should put a new product on the market if they should should they go all the way back to the visionary clients or should they try to focus on competing in the tornado uh, or or you know tornado candidates that's a little bit lower when they deploy their resources so to say it's it, you know there are several ways that a big company can play the game first of all the big companies have enough money to incubate new new ideas organically uh, that's not the, the their problem is not actually getting ideas started. Mm. You know, uh, the problem is bringing them to scale. And the reason mm. that's a problem is is you lose money when you bring something to scale. You you, you go through what they call a J curve. So, and this is what venture capital is all about. Venture capital says, yeah, use our money to go through the the, the J curve because we think you're going to come out the other side be incredibly mm. valuable. Mm. And and everybody understands that idea. But publicly held companies, the investors in those companies do not like that idea. So you get enormous pushback. And that, so there's a conflict of interest inside the public company between should we just do more in the core business or should we take a risk on, on the new business? And, and so for what, what Zone to Win's about is says, look, you need to make this decision very openly, transparently, and, 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 and uh, uh, precisely because if you're going to do one of these J-curves, it's a big bet and you, you really can't afford to lose. And so you're going to have to go all in on something and get the entire team rallied behind it. And, and you're going to make sacrifices in every other part of the company to make it happen. The reward being, you'll have a whole new business in your portfolio that will be part of your future. But it's a painful, painful journey. So the other thing you can say is, well, you know, we're just not that kind of company. Our boards, let not, they're kind of risk averse. We, we just don't have that kind of permission. Okay, we don't, fine. Then what we want to do instead is say, okay, we need to wait for the category to cross the chasm and the, and the leader will take off and we, the leader will be so expensive, we couldn't possibly afford to acquire them. But maybe the number two or number three or number four company, we can acquire them at, at a price that still will be more than we ever wanted to pay. But now we're in the category and we're going to actually shepherd it into our into our you know, core business in a way that we can leverage our existing sales force and we can leverage our existing relationships. If we can do that, that's you don't get you don't get this amazing raise in valuation, but you get another decade's worth of relevance to your customers. It's a big deal. Mm -hmm. So and it's, it's it's less risky, but it's also the rewards less. So it's, it's it's a different risk reward thing. But for many companies, that's a much better answer because the worst thing you can do is make a big transformational bet, get halfway in, and quit. Yeah. And, that, and then you see it all the time. You see it all the time. And it's just, it's so destructive. That's the thing you must avoid. 
Yeah, and that's so seems to be very, very hard for companies to actually make the whole transition and see it through. So that's so interesting, that theory. So for more so in other words, most companies are not suited to to take those J curves travels and, and journeys, but rather should focus on trying to buy companies in the right phase when they still are affordable, I so to say. I, I, yeah, and, and try to modernize their business, so, so try to catch up fast. Mm. And by the way, I'll give you an example. Microsoft has never really led a, 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 a disrupted themselves. Mm. If you think about it, you know, so, so it was WordPerfect that had the word processor, mm. you know, and it was Lotus123 that had the spreadsheet. It was Ashton Tate that had the database. It was Netscape that had the browser. You know, it, I mean, it was Google that had a search engine. It was AWS that did cloud computing. But mm. what Microsoft was incredibly and still is incredibly gifted at is they will they will find a way to get a they'll buy they'll buy Bing or you know they'll buy from Yahoo right or they'll or they'll they'll, they'll do their own investment and then they will catch up and they will catch up fast. So that's a very real play. Yeah, they have been extremely successful at that, and. Um... That's so interesting. From from a technology option lifecycle perspective, it would be interesting if you see any categories that you think is crossing the CASM as of today. Do you have any candidates there you could point out for us and give us an example of where you see they might? Yeah, yeah. I think, well, so it's interesting. So one of the things we're seeing a lot, that, like right now I'm working with um, two networking companies, Cisco and F5. Both are going through the same thing. These were both iconic hardware companies, basically uh, in the in, in the in the in the late 20th century, first part of this century. But the world is moving to software first and cloud first. So so those are those are situations where those two companies are going through a J curve internally to, to move their operating model and their business model. And so both cases that what the leader has to do is say we have to get through this transformation as quickly as we can. And, and we have to be totally focused on it because lingering in the middle and being halfway in between. If you look at like Oracle has gone sideways, really. For Oracle has lost power every year of this decade of this deck of the century, and it's not because they don't know what they're doing, but it's because they're still hung out between cloud and on-prem and this and that. And, and at some point, the world goes, well, okay. I mean, you're not going away. We don't want you to go away, but we certainly don't think you're the future. Mm. And, and and so that's 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 a bad place to get to, uh, and there are a lot of companies that have gotten to that uh, place as well. So so what you want to be able to do is say, um, where where is the next kind of category uh, to get into? In the case of in the case of the networking people, security is the, is is it, they both have figured. I think anybody in the network has figured out in the, in this new digital transformed world, the network has to be a source of security. And so, and so there's a, there's a, you could play in the security market in a way that 10 years ago, you would not have thought you could have. And so there's a, that's a place where they're re-entering. I think the other place you're going to see people doing this a bunch is with machine learning and, and artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, the, the IBM Watson was sort of an early market thing, but then it was like, well, but what do you actually use it for? When you're crossing the chasm right now, I think the machine learning around fraud detection big deal around predictive analytics for advertising, big deal. So you, you're seeing companies, uh, you know, win those, win those battles. And I, one last one I'll just do. Gainsight is a company in a category called customer success. So mm -hmm. customer, that's a good example. So customer success really wasn't a category 
10 years ago. We, we called it customer support or tech support. And there was a case management system. And, 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 and Gainsight was the first one that said, no, you're not doing this right. You want to find out, you want to manage the adoption cycle inside your customer base. And you need to have a, a group of people that do that. And they need to have a set of tools that help them do that. And so they, they created that thing. And, and their first segment was SaaS companies, which they were selling to themselves, as it were, because, <laughs> because in a SaaS business model, if your customers churn out, you're in deep trouble. So customer success went from being a nice to have to a must have. And so that, and that's what let them cross the chasm. Then once people saw the customer success motion working there, they thought, well, wait a minute. Why aren't we doing customer success? And now you're seeing customer success becoming increasingly more visible uh, as a category. Yeah, that's so interesting. And uh, eat their own dog food, I suppose uh, Microsoft would call that. <laughs> yes, oh, exactly. And, and, it, 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 and it, by the way, it's an interesting, uh, and, and uh, Gainsight has a very charismatic CEO, a guy named Nick Meta, who's kind of helped evangelize, kind of the way Guy Kawasaki helped jobs evangelize the Macintosh. And of course, you know, Bezos was charismatic about AWS and Andy, Andy Jazzy was as well. So, and then Satya in his quiet way is very charismatic mm. and certainly was with, with, with Azure and, and going forward, yeah. Yeah, that's a great example. And uh, by the way, I actually have read, uh, I think they're one of their first CMOs there, Anthony Kenanda's books uh, about category creation. I think that's a really good uh, book uh, about the Gainsight uh, market creation there. So awesome, awesome example. And uh, from a tornado perspective, last year <laughs> during the COVID season have been really interesting from, from uh, seeing a few categories pretty much explode. And I think I read an article about Microsoft Teams who became one of the fastest selling products ever in history. They went from like 8 million users to 50 in, in a few months or something like that. So, so yeah, I, I, I think that was a year where we had a lot of examples of exploding tornado categories. Uh, well, we're on what one. do you think? We, 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 you and I are communicating over one, right? Zoom. Yeah. Zoom has become a verb. Yeah. The yeah. way Google became a verb. The way you know Xerox became a verb, right? And 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 what Microsoft is doing with Teams is is saying we want that. Now you have to be a little careful with how Microsoft can grow a category, because if you're a Microsoft customer, you have what they call an enterprise license agreement. If I just transfer your enterprise license agreement from Office to Office 365 or from Office 365 to Teams, or I just add Teams to your agreement, I can grow from 8 million to 50 million like overnight. Right? <laughs> because basically, I, I, so, so, and by the way, that's their playbook. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that, it's, that, that this isn't a good idea. I'm just saying <laughs> you have to be thoughtful about it. If, if somebody's trying to copy Microsoft, it's like, well, unless you have a huge install base with an enterprise license agreement in place, you probably can't match what Microsoft just did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a good comment. It's, it's, uh, it's a kind of definition play there. What's, what's a new client and what's not and so forth. That's great. But I suppose Zoom have, uh, you know, based on one product, basically, have done a tremendous uh, <laughs> journey there as well, being in the right place at the right time. And it's, it's not that it wasn't the only player in that category. But they sure are the elephant or the gorilla, as you would define it in, in, in your language today, as, as I would see it. Or what do you say about that? Well, it's interesting. We have to be careful because I think Zoom is actually, Zoom went, well, the pandemic just made Zoom incredibly, mm -hmm. incredibly important. 
but but so you, you Microsoft is clearly saying, well, for the enterprise market, we want to take the Zoom option away from the enterprise. By the mm -hmm. way, so does Cisco with WebEx, and mm -hmm. so does Google with Hangouts. I mean, there's now there's now three or four things. I think for the if, if you're playing Zoom's card, you got to figure out a way to be figure out the, the the consumer side of that thing. They're playing with this idea of could you have advertising, whatever. But the thing that's happened in this world is the old gorillas are nowhere, not, nowhere near as slow as they used to be. Mm -hmm. So if you're a disruptor, you got you to stay disruptive going forward because these, these folks can catch up to you and, mm -hmm. and, and, and they do. And so yeah. I think Eric's, you know, in a situation where, you know, Zoom's, Zoom's, Zoom may get bought for that fall, I know. It's an incredible asset. They did, it's an amazing accomplishment, but it's a little bit of a jewel without a crown. It's like maybe that jewel should be in somebody else's crown. You, I don't know, but but it feels a little bit isolated compared to compared to, like well look what Slack did. So Slack was a jewel too, and it, it now has put itself in the Salesforce crown because you know I need to be part of a larger a larger uh, uh, ecosystem uh, for for doing stuff. Yeah. And that is, I suppose that's <laughs> that's something uh, Oracle will be really be successful on over the years, buying a lot of competitors and just putting them there. Microsoft, for example, as well, and and others now. Salesforce is doing that with, with Slack and so forth. What do you actually see a future where the mega companies, uh, you know? can be competed with on uh, since you say they're so fast nowadays and they have so much resources globals you know coverage and so on so if you were a cmo at a startup today you have you know your series a or you know you have some kind of financing but you need to stay out of of the target focus from microsoft and other big players so what would the playbook look like that you would deploy if you had you know free reigns in order to to play the marketing strategy as you would like right. well first of all the one thing about big players is they can't focus on niche markets then mm. for example salesforce bought velocity which had six vertical markets now in theory salesforce could have developed all those markets i mean it's, it's all built on top of the salesforce platform but because of their large the fact that they're they have big numbers to make and they have global sales forces selling very large companies very large uh, deals it's very hard for them to say we're going to specialize in anything. So if you're a CMO of a startup, you know, the first hundred million dollars, if as long as you define a market that is big enough to matter, but small enough to lead, that that's the play. I mean, and, 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 and frankly, the big guys will not compete against you in any interesting way because it, you're, you're, you're just too granular for, for them to deal with. About the time you hit a hundred million, they're going to go, now, wait a minute. Maybe that's our hundred million dollars, not yours. Right? So, so, <laughs> so at that point, at that point, you have to have a, a strategy which is either okay, I will exit. And by the way, uh, the venture capital people are saying, yeah, sell yourself to Oracle or SAP or Microsoft or Cisco, whoever the hell it is. And and by the way, we'll get a great return, and um, and we're done. And I do think for infrastructure plays where integration matters a lot. That is the exit play. I think the notion that that a, a disruptive infrastructure player would be able to to penetrate. Look at the hyperscalers. We've got Azure. We've got AWS. We've got Google. There really isn't a fourth. I mean, there's there's a there's a bunch of people that want to be number four. But markets go for for things that want to be horizontal. You know, there was Windows, and then there was you know Mac, and then there was sort of Unix, and that was there wasn't a fourth. That yeah. kind of thing. 
but for applicant, but there's always at the other end of things, the problems that aren't getting solved. Because as you solve any layer of problems, it just exposes the next layer of, mm. of, of problems. And those, I think you say, no, we can build, we can actually build an identity and own that problem and grow with that solution. And we can, def we can fight, we'll fight against the big guys as long as we're fighting on our turf, which is our problem expertise. Yeah, interesting. So awesome. So go small and go niche until you become big enough to actually decide where to be acquired and be fine with that or actually try to carve out something that is so unique that it can be defendable over time and, and continue to grow them. And uh, yeah, that's the power. It's a power game. If we go back to that thing about power versus yeah. performance, you're playing for power. Just don't forget you're playing for power as opposed to get confused by performance equals power. Power funds performance. I mean, mm. power fuels performance. Performance yeah. funds power, but they're different. And you have to realize what, what you're playing for. And in that sense, you define power as influence in a target category or target markets. Is that how you would say yeah, power? Yeah, I mean, you, 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 you have the competitive advantage in your market. So competitive mm -hmm. advantage is another phrase for power. And, and so in that market, you're the safe buy, you're the go-to player. Uh, and therefore, when, when you're the go-to solution, everything, you get the benefit <laughs> of the doubt everywhere. Your partners lean in, the customer wants to prefer you. They're, they say, well, why didn't we buy them as opposed to why did we buy them? Mm. Uh, if you're anybody else, it doesn't mean you can't sell. You can, but you're always swimming upstream. You're always going against, against the flow. So, you know, if you're going to be successful in any medium to long term, the world has to be working with, you have to be working with the world and the world has to be working with you. You can't always just be trying to row you know, against the current because you'll get tired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so, um, yeah. So, so I think that's a great, great recommendation for, for tech companies today that they want to do that. So for, for, uh, uh, enterprise software marketers, uh, have you any final words or parting recommendations for the next year? What to focus on and, and where do you see uh, most important things in the marketing playbooks for the next yeah, year? I, I, yeah, I do. I, mean, I, have a, I wrote a blog recently called the Front to Back Organization, which just said, you know, when I entered the industry in the, in the 20th century, we, ERP was kind of the, the enterprise uh, backbone, mm. and it was a supply chain oriented deal. So you, you started with the, the the suppliers, you built the supply chain, you got the product, you put the product in distribution, the distribution went to the customer, and there was customer support and whatever. But it was oriented from the product to the customer. And you, you focused on your product, and then you marketed it, and then you sold it, and then you moved on. What's happened in this century is we've flipped it. Because there's so much product at, at reasonable price because we brought in China, we brought in India, we brought in the global economy. Product is no longer the scarce ingredients. The customer is now the scarce ingredient. And so now it's the same supply chain, it's the same value chain, but we need to organize it from the customer back as opposed to from the product forward. So think of what, what that does to every function, but let's start with marketing. Marketing used to be take the product and figure out a way to position it to sell it to the customer. Now it's like, take the customer and figure out what product we should sell to them. And then let's make that product. So it, all of a sudden you're, you're trying to organize backward from the customer as opposed to forward from the product line. 
that that's every function gets changed. Sales has got to become much more consultative, much more customer centric. Customer support has become customer success, right? Uh, I mean, you you go you, you go through the, and the whole the whole business model of, of 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 subscription and consumption says the customer has this power because they can churn out at any time. So all of a sudden, and, and now you know we used to be well, it's all about landing and. And we, we'd lay these huge deals. And then, frankly, we wouldn't talk to the customer for five years. But, but, but in the new world, it's like, no, you land and expand, which means you continually have to build a relationship of trust. Well, salesmen and trust were not always words you used in the same sense. But, but now you have to. Now it's like, no, you need to do that. So it's, a, it's, a, it's the same world, but, it, but it's just a different world. It's a different flavor of the same world. And I think... It's easy for people to get caught up in a world like, well, no, your marketing budget, you know, your pipe gen, you know, what's your marketing qualify? I mean, there's a bunch of stuff you got to measure. And it's really important. But at the margin, you need to think, yeah, but I need to think customer back. I, I, need, I can't. And we, we, you know, we always said that. But the truth is, we would hear things to the customer. It never really got back to R&D. They never really listened to any of that stuff. And the answer is, well, if today, if we don't listen, we're going to lose the customer. So we, we got to learn. Yeah, that's a great final advice. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. It's, we can definitely conclude that the theories and the books and all the content you have put out for over 30 years is definitely well and alive <laughs> and well, in much of need still. So <laughs> thank you so much for that. You're uh, awesome in uh, concluding and trying to condense these kind of complex ideas and thoughts into your books and literature. So I'm looking forward to your next and after that next book as well. So, so we can keep up with you and uh, thank you so much for taking your time. Okay. And if somebody who haven't read your content for uh, some reason, haven't heard about you, uh, where would you like to send them to read more about you, your content or your books uh, beside Amazon, I suppose, where you can find everything, but yeah. do you have any uh, other website? Yeah, there's a, there's, it's just jeffreyamore.com. So it's just, it, you just, if you Google my name, it'll take you to the website. There is actually a new book out, but it's not about business. It's called The Infinite Staircase, what the universe tells us about life, ethics, and mortality. Because I'm getting to a point in my life where it's like, okay, I want to write sort of the, the, the big legacy book. Well, I did, and I care about it. And so, but it's 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 not a marketing book for sure. <laughs> but it, is, it is a life book. And, and if anybody's interested, awesome. I would be delighted to, to, to have them. Uh, oh, that's a very interesting discussion as well. But I suppose that's for another, another podcast, day. Jeffrey. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time and uh, have a great day. Take care, Jacob. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lead Generation Strategies for B2B tech companies. Don't forget to subscribe. You will find it where podcasts live. Discover how we can help you with your lead generation activities at brightvision.com.